Let's talk about change. Someone I really love and care about sent me a pretty funny cartoon the other day that I think is a good place to start with. And I'll try to illustrate it in audio format. So there's like a king, a ruler, somebody at the podium, and he, he approaches the crowd and he goes, Who wants change? And then he goes, Who wants to change? Change is one of those funny things. If you've ever sat with your therapist wondering, why don't I do the things I think I want to do? Like be in shape or eat better. (laughs) Have you ever set a goal for just eating better? And like, I don't know. I'll give you some credit. Two weeks later, you're just reaching for something absolutely the exact opposite of what would help you reach that goal. Change is hard. We love change as humans. We have a strong desire to change, but when it comes to actually changing, at least on an individual level, oof, my heart's out there with you if you're trying to change something about yourself. The good news about change is humans seem to be pretty good at adapting to change. It's like the one thing you're told right off the bat about why humans were such a successful species. So we're good at adapting to change. We've pretty much inhabited the whole world a lot of places that are uninhabitable too. But we've changed. The past 10,000 years, we've gone from hunter-gatherer to having ridiculous societies. I'm trying to pick the words to describe. If you were to show your life to one of your ancient ancestors, they wouldn't recognize what we're doing right now as the same thing. It's totally different. Looking at how far humans have come in 10,000 years, at first I got it wrong when I recorded this intro. And I'm going, oh my gosh, humans are great at change. Look at all the way we've changed this whole life, this existence. So I recorded something about change, about how we're good at change, and we're this, and <laughs> sent it to an expert, an expert at human change. She goes, you've got it all wrong. You've got it completely wrong. Humans are terrible at change. We hate change. We hate to change, I should say. So what happened? How do you explain that we're now able to live on top of each other a hundred stories up? Or that we're able to drive climate-controlled boxes at 70 miles an hour wherever we want. A select few people. A select few people have made giant changes that we have embraced and adapted to. We seem to be pretty good at adapting to stuff. But when it comes to actually taking the initiative and making change, select few. At first, I didn't know what to do with that information. It really set me off. I had kind of like a a theme I was going to do to present this conversation with a wonderful change maker and um, threw me off. I genuinely thought this was something that we kind of did collectively. Well, after I got over the initial disappointment of me spending time kind of writing this whole intro and performing this whole intro about this very positive outlook about how we all get to be part of the change and do our small part. Well, the reality of it kind of set in. Like, yeah, that feels true. Change is really hard. It's hard to change yourself. It's hard to change your community. It's hard to make change. It's not always what you want to do. But if you do want change, if you in your heart want to change yourself, if you've been all over social media talking about change you want in your communities or in your countries. It starts small. 
It starts by picking a corner, picking a corner of yourself or your house or a little corner of your neighborhood and figuring out how you can make that better. And you go from there, one step at a time. Often, from what I've learned, taking the first step is the hard part. And here to help inspire you to take a step, one small step towards making something better than it was before, is one of my heroes, somebody who also won CNN Hero of the Year, so obviously other people's heroes as well, Maggie Doyne. Maggie Doyne is a huge role model. This is somebody who now runs an organization called Blink Now, which has women's shelters and medical centers and schools for kids and homes for kids who don't have parents. But it started with her just wanting to help one child. And it ends with her adopting over 50 and creating this incredible organization. But it starts with the first step. And so this is my conversation with Maggie Doyne in an episode I'm calling Take the First Step. Hi. Hey. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm glad I'm glad we caught you because you're normally in Nepal. So uh, when we first talked about having you as a guest, <laughs> Misty was pitching Nepal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Said, you might have to go. And I said, okay. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm glad you're here in town. It's so good to be here. So this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like, but it's where I'd like to start every time. And who are you? I'm a mother. I'm trying to leave the world a better place for children. And I think I'm sad about the way the world is for kids right now. And yeah, I just want to make it better. And could you elaborate just a little bit? So everybody does the the big bird's eye view, but just if you wouldn't mind just boasting a bit, just about like who you are, what you're known for, what you've done. So when I was 18, I decided at the last moment not to go to college, packed up a backpack and set off on a gap year to travel the world, thinking I would find myself or find my purpose or just have some fun like scuba diving and learning how to meditate with monks or, you know, just teenage stuff. And I think I was a really burnt out suburban soccer playing SAT scoring kid. and. Um, in all of the sort of hustle and struggle of being a young person and a teenager and having this idea of what success was, I think I'd lost my way a bit. And kind of just by happenstance, kind of one step and then another and then through travel and ultimately ending up in northeastern India, I found my way to uh, Nepal. And I got really interested in Nepal after meeting a lot of refugee children and working with refugee children and seeing kids coming over the border and getting into really bad situations, whether it was human trafficking or child labor or um, just sleeping under plastic as a refugee. And seeing that face-to-face kind of piqued my curiosity about Nepal. And I had a friend who was Nepali and had left her village about eight years prior as a kid during the Maoist revolution, and the two of us planned a trip to go to Nepal. And as the story unfolds, I was on a riverbed, kind of walking across this riverbed in rural Nepal, and I saw children breaking rocks. And 
they had really big rocks and mallets and you just heard the clank, clank, clank of them breaking these rocks into gravel to sell for about a dollar at the end of a very long day. And this is what they did all day, every day, instead of going to school, instead of playing, instead of having the childhood or their most basic human rights, which they deserved. And I think, you know, the moment where I decided to stay there, just it felt easier to stay there and stare that in the face and try to make it better than it did to turn around and go back and go to college. So ultimately, I make this decision to start with just one little girl, Hema. Um, she said namaste. After and that, I convinced my parents in suburban New Jersey to transfer over my babysitting money. You start by sending Hema <laughs> to school. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of breaking rocks. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and then after a couple more kids that you send to school, right, you decide to call your your parents. So it started by just this kind of like addiction to enrolling kids into school and watching the magic that would unfold. And everything about them would just change. Like they'd be happy and they would have their little backpack and their cute uniform and, you know, not have to break rocks every day. So it, it felt like a simple answer to a complicated issue. And then going through that process, I realized that going to school was kind of like this distant dream and wish and kind of up here when there were all of these other systemic issues around poverty and child labor and trafficking and child marriage. And to really address that for orphans, I felt like we also needed to do a home for the kids who didn't have a place to be. And have that safe foundation of family and love and support and nutrition. So that is when the kind of the next step of having my parents send the babysitting money happened. So you could buy your own center, like your own plot of land to make. Remind me what your place is called. Coppola Valley Children's Home. Coppola Valley Children's Home. It's such a beautiful story. So I remember listening to another one of your talks where you're saying, my first goal was to just make sure that there was no more kids in that riverbed that there's no more kids breaking rocks basically for a living. And it said they were all taken care of. And now it's grown drastically. Now you walk across that riverbed and there's not a single child breaking stone. And I think that was the initial vision of just like, can we create the world we want to live in? And what if it started with just a riverbed and giving these kids the childhood they deserved or a childhood that similar to what I'd been given, not the same, but... Just for some background on Nepal, it it was caught in a civil war for over a decade. And can you explain some of the, like what the climate is going on, what you kind of walked into before, I guess where you started, just what the mm-hmm. lay of the land looks like? Yeah. So it was 2005, 2006, there had been a Maoist rebellion, the fall of a monarch, and throughout kind of the civil war and also just the difficulty of being a landlocked Himalayan country and all the issues surrounding poverty and food deprivation. There was about 1 million orphan kids and a lot of struggle when when it came to public health crises, enrollment into primary school for children, women's rights. And so when I went across the border in 2005, 2006, there was an armistice and the border had opened up but you could very much feel the effects of civil war 
and just how it ravaged the country. And you could see the rawness of what war does to people, to kids, to women, to mothers, to villages. So schools had been shut down. Families had been separated. Children were taken from their families and forced to fight in the rebellion. Um, People fled the country as refugees. And it felt broken, but also just really beautiful. Like Nepal is also a stunningly beautiful place. It's the Himalayas and the green rice paddies and the people are so welcoming and hospitable and they smile. So it was interesting. There was this stark difference. Like I felt welcomed and loved and at home and at peace. But also you could see what the country had been through and how its people and its women and children were really struggling. So that was that was kind of what I walked into and what I was struggling with because I was just falling in love with these people and the kids and also, you know, seeing that there was so much to do. Yeah. Can you walk us through just the, I guess, the timeline of from when you first send, not Hisa, what's Hima. Hima. <laughs> when you first send Hima <clears throat> to school to then having your parents send you your life savings, which you had made on your own from babysitting to start your first, it, it was a school at first, right? Before it was an orphanage. It actually started as a home. Oh, it started as a home. So yeah. it started as a home. We call it a home specifically, but other people could call it an orphanage. Um, yeah. So it started as that. And we were initially just enrolling kids into school and then a few years in, we realized like, hey, we really need all of these kids under one roof. And as the model for uplifting this community, we kind of started to figure things out. We realized that there were just so many pieces to the puzzle of making sure a community and a child can thrive. For example, like nutrition and school lunch, we'd really needed to provide our kids with food in order to make sure that you know, they had the nutrition and they'd actually come to school instead of begging or breaking rocks. Um, so food security was huge. And then clean water. Like uh, oftentimes kids don't live past the age of five. So you can enroll as many kids into school as you want. But if kids are dying of cholera or malnutrition, what what are you really trying to accomplish? So we had to start with basic building blocks and then the next piece became, you know, the clinic and immunizations and healthcare and preventative care. And then the arts and music and books and launching a library and computers and steam. And then we launched a counseling center because kids need to heal from their trauma. They need social workers and therapists and, um, you know, awareness around that and family development programs. And then we launched the Women's Center. So it kind of became this multifaceted organism. And as we slowly and organically grew and we could provide more services for the kids, the community started to improve and engage as well. How did this happen? Like you you, th- <laughs> you go on what would now be like an Instagram trip, you know, to go get some hot photos of yourself. <laughs> you Right? Like that's what it would be when you're, you know, going to travel the world. Like you're going for the grams. Mm. But and then you run into poverty, which is everywhere. It's in San Francisco. It's in, down here in L.A. But you run you run into extreme poverty, maybe that you've never encountered before, which is six year old or nine year old who is doing manual labor. And I, I understand being like, you know what? I have enough dollars uh, to get HEMA into school. 
but like when you make the leap of faith, when you go from spending your only $5,000 on this property to then starting to scale, like, I guess my question is like, how, like what drove it? What drove that? Cause it's such an unusual response. Mm. Right. Normally people would maybe spend their life savings sending people to school, but then come home. Yeah. I think often people think I like set out with this big scheme and big plan and was like, I'm going to go help kids. And it was, I, it's hard to, when you are sitting down and going through the events, looking back all these years later, but it was these little teeny tiny baby steps. It was traveling for yeah, for fun and for self-exploration and for my rite of passage and figuring out college. And then it became just a happenstance trip to Nepal with my friend um, and working with refugees. And then it became putting kids into school and realizing how amazing and rewarding and fun it was. And then meeting my co-founder and meeting a team of Nepalis, I think that was really critical and one of the steps of realizing, hey, we can really do something here. We can really build something. And then going back to the States and babysitting and like, okay, it's going to start with a home and just a safe place with painted bright yellow and marbles and music and joy, knowing that the next meal will always come. Then it was like falling in love with the kids and being a mom and kind of finding my place there and a life there. So it wasn't like even every time I'd call my parents, it would be like, okay, I'm going to take like six more months. I'm going to take one more year. It was never, this is the decision I've made with my life and it's my forever. It was just like, I'm going to try to do this and that. And actually that's my advice to young people now. It's like, just start with one step and watch how it unfolds and watch how it leads you. Because I think when people look at me, they're like, what? And then this this happened and then that and then... And it's true that things unfolded and grew, but it's also true that it just started with one girl and then a few kids. So, and a lot of learning, you know, like just a lot of learning. I hated orphanages. I was like, this isn't good. I don't like them. I'm just going to create something that's better. And we did that as a team. And then the school system was broken. So I was like, okay, well, we can do this. We know how to run a school. We know how education works and we're going to make a team and find people who do. And so we did that. And I think when you're young, you also have to just learn from other people a lot. So that was kind of a big part of our model too, just figuring out, okay, they did that and it worked. How can we? What was your biggest learning moments? Like what were the ones where you go, oh my gosh. It was always a question. I came in as a bit of an outsider. And so it was always a question of like, okay, when do you push for change? And say, you know, I'm not going to stand for this. We need to make it better. And when do you embrace the culture and assimilate and accept and walk into that? And I've surrounded myself with a really good Nepali team. But like one example is Chowpati. Like in Nepal, women, when they're menstruating or on their period, have to sleep outside in the cow shed. And this is a common accepted practice for women and girls and they're not allowed to touch the water. They're not allowed to go in the kitchen. They have to sleep outside alone. And what that does, and you can read about it, it you know, makes them at risk for sexual assault, for snake bites, for smoke inhalation because they light a fire when it's cold. And I remember very vividly moments of like 
now that we had a home with girls in it, people thinking that the girls should sleep in the cow shed and needing to be like, no, this is wrong. Like, I'm not going to stand for this. And then having to make my way through that and work through it and other times where I had to learn how to just be a listener and observer and watch the people around me and watch the Nepalis lead and make decisions. And that was always a fine kind of art and line to walk, especially as an outsider going into a community. Yeah, it's such an important thing to touch on, right? Because there's so many really wonderful intended people that just didn't understand what they were getting into. What was your favorite teaching moment where you realized that you were trying to do what you were comfortable with or what you envisioned versus it, but then the the local Nepali team that you put together said, you know, kind of showed you that this is the way that is best. It's gosh, it happens every day. <laughs> My co-founder, Topi, like always just brings me back and is like, no, we gotta go slow. I think I maybe fell into the trap of like going in big and fast and quick and like, okay, then we're gonna do this. And then I think it was Tope that was like, hey, we have to raise kids and change is going to happen really slow. And this is like there's so many little moments of not just opening my mouth and stopping and listening. I'm trying to think of one specific example. I can think of a lot like working with the government where Tope is just like, no, nope, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to navigate this. And I think about it in our Nepali boardroom all the time of just needing to listen about how they would go about something and strategize with the community and versus how I might do something as an, as someone from a different culture. I can't think of anything really specific right now, but it just, sure it's come. all the time. It's all the time. It's all the time. Yeah. When did it go from being just somebody that wanted to help to a maternal bond with your kids? Because you end up adopting 50? Mm-hmm. Or more? Is it 50? I kids? think it's with Ruby now. It's 53. 53 kids. Well. And that's separate from the kids that you're helping just go to school go to with school. their own families. Those are yeah, kids that you've so, taken in full time. So the approach that we use is very family first. So we keep children within their families whenever possible as like everything that we can to have interventions within the family unit. And that's part of running within Nepal and having a full service community school. And then the second element is that there are times when a child does have no one and nowhere to go and they're not safe. So we have two residential facility programs. One is a safe house for girls, um, particularly of adolescent ages, which is a huge at risk. There's a giant sex trafficking problem mm -hmm. in Nepal, right? Yes. Yeah, I know another and nonprofit that works around that too. Yeah, child marriage, sex trafficking, domestic servitude. So that's one of our residential programs. And then the other is our home where babies come and grow and are raised. And I think it was really important to me having seen the way that um, orphanages were, that this felt different, that this really felt truly like a family. And everyone always asks with the home, like, well, what's so, why is it so special? Because you do feel this sense of, it feels like a family. It feels like a home. And I think it was just love. I didn't expect to love the kids the way that I'd love them. And we all just became very, very close. And I think it was part of just, we really set out to create a family and to have it be a home. That's why we don't use the word orphanage 
It feels like a family unit. It feels like any dinner table that you'd sit at with any loving, joyful family. And it's a space for healing and growth and fun and laughter and, you know, family drama. We have that too (laughs) with the kids and little disagreements. But I think with that intention really set from the very beginning and envisioning the yellow color of joy and the swing set and the marbles and the dance, a real true family bond set in. And the kids didn't always call me mom. It started as like I was Maggie. And after two, three, four years of just being in it every single day, every single moment, you know, bath time and bedtime stories and soccer games and wiping noses and being there up through the night when they were sick and being the disciplinary one that got them in trouble when they were playing with the electrical outlets. Um, They came in one day and were like, we really want to call you mom. And it was in those first kind of few years that that really solidified it. And then just having babies and raising them as my own. And yeah, but again, not expected. I wasn't like, I'm going to go adopt all these. Like it's, it's so, I think that narrative comes into play, but when you go a little bit deeper, you see that it was more of a slow evolution. It was just sort of doing the next thing Mm -hmm. and then becoming what it became. Would it be okay to ask about the loss of your of your child and just how that I guess shaped part of this the story because it was such a pivotal moment for you. Are you comfortable? A little bit. I mean, yeah. I can't really talk about it much without sobbing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's still very raw. I mean, yeah, I Ravi is the name of was the name of my youngest son, and we're very very close. He came to me when we were he was two months old, and he was suffering from starvation. And we just loved him right up. And he was went into the NICU, made a really mir- miraculous recovery, and the two of us were bonded very, very closely. Um, and when he was almost two years old, right after Christmas, he died in an accident at our house. And, um, yeah, I think it was just, yeah, the end of me, I guess. Yeah. It was the end. <laughs> And I don't think it'll ever be the same. And um, yeah, it's, I guess, kind of like a major turning point in my own life and something that will never quite feel right. And yeah, it's really deeply affected our family. It was pretty tragic and horrific. One of the things about tragedy is replaying of the, like what I could have done but differently, right? Like instantly, I. I have a a loved one who got a text message from somebody and said, like, I'm really busy tonight, but I can see you tomorrow. And they killed themselves that night. Uh, This is very recently. And she is stuck in that cycle of like, oh, I could have texted back something different or I could have dropped everything that I was doing. But the truth is that she had no idea at the time what was, you know, and I was trying to say, like, like you literally did the best that you could with everything that you knew in that moment. Mm. And how how do you work on the the forgiveness towards yourself in the in, in the reality of the loss that what happened happened and that you were doing everything that you can to the best of your ability in the moment and not 
get caught in that. It's、mm. like such a toxic thing we humans do for some reason. Maybe it's to avoid other, to try to avoid other tragedy in the future. But you see, so many people get caught in that cycle of like just continuing to to shame themselves and abuse themselves. And what what is your own journey around your relationship to your to yourself with it? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, I I'll never forgive myself. I will carry Ravi's loss with me till the day I'm gone. But I think I have mercy for myself as a mother, and I can have mercy and love, and you know, love for him. I think the loop. I, I talk to a lot of mothers who lost children, and. The best advice that they ever got was that I ever got, and that they ever got was、um, just not, when you catch your brain going there and going into the loop of what could have or should have, and it's a trick in therapy too. Like shouldhood is shithood. Like it's yeah. Anytime you say the word should, it's like yeah, but shit. It's like there's no. Psychological point to go down that road of what you should have or could have, because it's gone and there's only moving forward. And so, it really helps me to not go to that day and not go to the moments leading up to it, and also like not force myself to forgive, but just to find, like you said, the glimmers and the hope and the joy and. Live with his heart inside of mine, and try to keep keep going at it. I don't know, just like try to try to keep giving back and making this world better. And this world needs me, and the kids need me. Not only my kids and my little corner of the earth in Nepal, but kids everywhere. Like there's so much suffering, and these cycles that we're seeing of poverty, of violence, of death, of Trauma and tragedy. A lot of them are cyclical, and so by me having mercy and healing myself and my own heart, I'd like to think that you know it's helping the kids and helping the world. But yeah, I'm again. It's 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 my own work. I don't have any answers. I'm struggling every day, just like you are, just like your friend is, just like we all are. It's the stuff is really impossibly hard. It is impossibly hard.、Mm-hmm. So I've been through events that felt like the end of the world at the time, and it's nothing compared to losing a child. But various heartbreak and tragedy. And how did you heal? Like how did you recover from that? Because it's so easy to just want to give up, but you also have fifty-two kids that needed you. Or I guess at the time it's really fifty. Yeah.、Um... Well, you definitely don't ever heal or recover. That's, I think that's number one lesson. And I think today, like that's still what I struggle with. It's like, oh, I'll never be okay. You know, like I wake up every day and I will never be okay, and I'll always be healing. But how I how I kept going and how I didn't give up was definitely because of the kids. But there was definitely a dark time in there where I couldn't even. Be with them or see them, and I think they were probably really scared that they were going to lose me as a mom, and 
yeah, there was a time where it just like it was too hard to get out of bed and too hard to function and too hard to breathe and eat. And I got, I think I started to get better when my really close friends were like, you need to get out of bed and um, (laughs) you need to to get up. And so right before this tragedy struck, I'd been nominated and won CNN Hero of the Year. And it was definitely like the high of the high. Like I had met the Dalai Lama. I had, you know, we were winning all of these awards. The world was watching us and looking and learning from our model and our blueprint. I mean, life was really good. The kids were thriving and healing and growing and our family was happy and the school was being built. And um, so CNN Heroes happened and the tragedy happened. And um, part of CNN Heroes was that you won and you also got to do this nonprofit training actually in LA. And um, I was like, well, maybe I can just try to get there and go to this thing for CNN Heroes. And my best friends were like, you're going, like, get out of the rain and snow. Cause I was back in New Jersey where I was from. And in the darkness. And uh, they were like, just come out, come in the sun, come to <laughs> come to California. You got to go to that event and just at least try to go every day. So I come out back to California and uh, I was doing that event and barely making it through the days. Um, and one of my second or third nights, I was there. And long story short, I ran into my now the man I I'm with (laughs) my husband and I met him really soon after right around that time. And we fell really, really in love through, I don't know, that journey together and falling in love and him kind of, not that he was kind of like a knight in shining armor or anything, but we made a trip to like get back there and get back to the kids and together. And I think that feeling that kind of love again really was helpful and a different kind of love, a way different. And it didn't make it better or okay, but it was just like, oh, I can feel these feelings of love again. And then just getting back to the kids and trying to get back into a routine and continuing. I don't know. It is a magic moment when, when you yeah. go from feeling destroyed and you have a little like glimmer of hope again and to realize that your heart still does work. Mm-hmm. How do you explain to your kids about the the harshness of this world and how chaotic it is and how, you know, there's this like, here in America where there's so much privilege. Like it's so easy to have this view of the world that there's this universe looking out for everyone. And if things aren't going well, there's things you can do. But in other parts of the world, it's really just because you were born here at this time in this place, it's just catastrophic. And there doesn't seem to be justice happening or there's huge injustice happening. And how do you explain that to to your kids about the world, how there are these beautiful things happening in the world. And there's also these tragedies happening. Yeah. I mean, sadly, all of my children had to learn that at a very young age and they lived 
that reality because by the time they came into our home, they'd suffered tremendously loss of parents and family members and abuse and severe neglect, hunger. So I think the children who we work with, they really know that and they carry that with them. And I think they feel, I think when you go through tragedy and you see that level of suffering, I think you feel things a little deeper and I think you feel a little bit more grateful and you take in the good things a bit more. And so I think after tragedy and after seeing the other side and after seeing the harshness really and looking at it in the face to face, I find that when the good things are there, even if it's just like a clean glass of water or a shower or quiet or peace or joy or a song or the ability to like drive if you're a woman (laughs) or choosing who you get to marry, you start to realize that everything, every day, every moment is a gift and every breath is a gift. And I think when you are able to turn that corner into gratitude and feeling each day and each moment and being grateful to be alive, that's where the magic is. And it's like I would just hope that people don't need to feel tragedy and loss to really feel that sense. And I also feel that when you have that sense of freedom or that sense of privilege, like I think it's our job as a human family to give it back and to pay it forward. And I think that eventually human beings will figure out that our purpose here is to take care of each other. Yeah. We're in this strange time where there's a lot of like keyboard activists you know there's a lot of people who think that they know how to solve all the world's problems for not doing anything to really help like they might tweet it or instagram it but you know (laughs) it's 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 all about boots on the ground or money you know or resources right like it's it's great to to talk about it but talk is cheap you know i think there's a lot of people, especially when it comes to like, I don't know, supporting their favorite band. Like they think just talking about it's enough. It's like, no, buy a t-shirt, you know, buy some merch, buy a CD. But it's the same with our guests, our collective problems around the world is that you either need a volunteer or you need to cough up money. One of the, the strange things in researching you was I came across some like nasty, like detractors, right? That are like, that were basically just writing like what they would do if they were you. And uh, that you were like doing it all wrong and were like a, like the term was like a white savior or something. And it just was like, it just felt awful. Like it just felt like, well, what are you guys doing? And how, how do you deal with the, the criticism where it's like you're, you're devoting so much of your time and energy to being part of a solution to a problem that's right in front of you that you have dedicated your life to and you've moved there and, and it's like we still like they're these i don't know what you'd call them but it's everywhere in life though you know if you're doing anything of note there's going to be these detractors oh totally i mean i think i mean everyone doing anything and sharing their story and having a platform anything you say can be taken the wrong way or criticized i actually think the issue around white saviorism is real People really do go out in the world and snap pictures and orphanages and orphanages can be used as trafficking rings, as places where people do come and 
volunteer and um, do bad things. And on the surface, I think my story very much can look like that narrative of like this girl, you know, had no idea what she was doing, no experience. So I, I, I take the criticism with responsibility, I think, to share the story, to share the learnings, to share my partnership and with the community and what I think it took to learn the lessons of creating a project that was successful. And I also like when that, I think you're t- there, we had a video that went viral and 150 million people saw it. And I didn't see a video. This was a, it was written. I'll <laughs> look for it. Everywhere. I'll look for the video. So there, so, and yeah, and, and people have every right to make, judgments but for every bad comment there was someone in Haiti or inner city in the US or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or East Africa who wrote oh my gosh I totally see this vision and I think I could do something like that and thank you for sharing that story this made me feel like I can do anything it is about action and taking action reading, doing your research, you know, we can't go into things blind. We can't think we're going to solve every problem and fix the world. But I do feel that we have to start somewhere and we have to start where we are with what we have. For me, like it didn't, you know, I could have left those kids on the riverbed and gone to get my PhD and, you know, become an expert in development or, gone you know I, I that journey could have but this is my story and those it resonated with my heart and it we were digging that hole for the foundation with the babysitting money and we went and read every book on development that we could and I learned Nepali and met with the people and you know we're really careful about child protection and making sure it doesn't become a tour <laughs> like a place where people tour so it's I think I don't know the long of that answer is yeah I think everyone just needs to do what resonates with them, but we have to do something and not use an alibi of like, well, maybe I'll do it when this and oh, like, yeah, I think there's, there likes to be a lot of, there is a lot of talk <laughs> to there's go back to your well, point. <laughs> in this particular one, it was like they had read the headline and that was it. And then they wrote mm-hmm. this giant letter addressing everything that you should be doing but it was all stuff that you already were so it's like and she needs to work with locals and it's like okay well you're already doing that and it was like the whole thing for Baden was like they just didn't even bother to get mm-hmm. to understand the project at all they just had this venom coming out of them it's and- made me a lot like slower to make judgments on anyone yeah without researching god i've been doing that too i've been catching myself just snap judging people like right away like my stepdad, you know, where like we had a tough time in the beginning. I just, for whatever reason, just didn't feel warm to him. And um, now we've been trying to get closer. And it's like when he first says stuff, I just instantly notice my snap judgment and going, why are you judging him? It's definitely in all of us for sure. Oh, it's part of our human condition. I think it's a human condition to just be like, one, choose what we care about of like, this is what matters and this is what important to me and this is what I care about and this is what I can control. And yeah, and yeah, just like really quickly judging because we know better. <laughs> and and I think, 
we all just need to work together and collaborate even in the nonprofit space like hey we can we can address these issues the world is getting better and it's getting there step by step and kids are getting into school and public health outcomes are improving and poverty rates are declining but it's taking real work and real action and real advocacy and speaking up and writing up and we have to follow where the action is and where the metrics are and where like hey we're learning we know now that taking a helicopter and dropping in shoes doesn't work. You know, like we've gotten there in our charity evolution and our development evolution. We've learned best practices. We've learned, you know, quality over quantity, going deep, working with locals and partnership. And that actually makes me really hopeful for the future. We have more young women enrolled into school across the world than we've ever had in the history of time. You know, we've have, we have more health wins, child marriage rates are are decreasing, maternal health is the best it's ever been. So I think we do have to focus on the good and the action and the change. And I think we're very like in our culture, we love to like, just, it's all about what's out here. And like, okay, if I buy something, if I do this, if I find my partner, if I I don't know. It's like we're waiting for the next thing to happen and it's all a distraction from the truth and the purpose and us just being here and what's on the inside. And the sooner we can learn to not bite that hook <laughs> of like all of this nonsense and noise of like even just as a woman like constantly, okay, do I look okay? Weight, makeup, buying, consuming, you know, it's, we're really caught up in that as a people. And I think it's, we're searching for happiness and, and, and purpose. And, um, I just want everyone to find it. And the secret is, is that you find it through helping other people Yeah, and you find it within yourself. And that's like the moral of every podcast I feel. (laughs) about a human like that's not a human i feel i think it really does come back to service a -hmm. lot most of my problems are me centered you know like most of my life problems all have to do with me 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 yeah i've known i've paid through the nose to learn that that service is if you're really really stuck just being of service to someone else can really help you i know that like last week was um tough it was just a tough week for me and um I couldn't wash my own dishes, but I sure as hell felt really good washing someone else's dishes Mm. at their house, you know, which is funny, you know, it's funny how it worked that way, but it made me feel a little better because I could show up for them even though I couldn't show up for myself. It's so true. It's so true. Since you're a parent many times over, what are the main things that you want to instill in your children? Like what are the important life lessons that you want them to all carry with them? Mm. Kindness. Loving with an open heart, forgiveness, the ability to heal because life is hard and they will continue to have challenges and you've just got to get yourself up. You got to get up from your knees and keep going and keep going and keep, keep it at, keep at this thing called life. I want them to learn that too, that gift of giving back and making this world a little better. 
I really resonated with one of the things that you said earlier, which is that I will never be healed. I will always be healing. Mm. And that just feels so true. You know, like I think that we're, we're sold the idea that we need to get better, get over it is basically right. That's what that means. I'll get over it. It's making us all uncomfortable. Mm. And I feel like I'm in my own life, like chasing being healed, like, I don't know, a Buddhist would chase enlightenment, you know, which is like, I don't think it's something that will be attained. How do you learn to, to be comfortable in, in the act of living in healing? Okay. With not being okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like with a not complete being okay. surrender. Like I am just have to be okay with not being okay. And I think I fell into that trap of like, go, 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 just get better. Just like get, you can do this. You get back to those kids. And recently, I mean, I'm no expert, but it's just like, it's our work every day. It's just everyone's work. No matter what trauma, I mean, there are plenty of people who haven't experienced a really intense trauma, who their work still, like we all have inner demons and anxieties and things that are hard. And I think yeah, our work is like self-love and part of self-love is that, yeah, we're still these beings who are healing and doing the work and you have your ups and you have your downs and you have to be okay with wherever you are. And yeah, just not let yourself stay on the downs too long. <laughs> get back up. Try. <laughs> Try to get out of bed. Yeah. You've been really generous with your time, and this is how I like to end the program. If I could slide a phone over to you, and you could record a message for, let's let's say a message for your, for your kids if you knew that you weren't going to be here anymore, mm. and a message that they could come back to and listen to and would help them grow into the adults that they're supposed to become, what's the message that you would want to leave for them? I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm there within you. And take all of that joy and all of our dance parties and all of our moments and keep spreading the love. Keep it going like ripples. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> That's it for today's episode. Don't forget, before you leave, this is an audience-funded program. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash how to human listen to the episodes early ask a question become a part of the community i need you guys it's lonely here i'd love your feedback on episodes before they come out but also you can leave us a review on itunes and don't forget if you'd like to hear from more of the guests or like to see what they're up to i include all their social media and website links in the show notes which is just the episode description thanks for tuning in to the how to human podcast tell your friends